Hello, welcome to Loreverse, the podcast for all things myth, lore, and those creepy things that go bump in the night. Each week, I'm sitting down with some non-mythers and introducing them to the wonderful world of mythology. We're taking a look at cultures and humanity and connecting myth and lore to the issues we still face in society today. There will be wine and snacks and plenty of laughs along the way. So sit back, relax, and join me on my personal quest to corrupt the minds of the world one myth at a time. Welcome to episode one in Nana. I chose to start out this mythological journey with the goddess I consider to be the ultimate feminine archetype. She's cunning, ambitious, and sexy. Plus, she rides a freaking lion into battle, and you really can't get any more badass than that. My guests this episode are my sister Joe and dear friend Carrie. And let me tell you guys, this episode has it all. I mean, we've got drinking competitions, raunchy wedding vows, fantastic magical vulvas, and of course, the freaking meh. Listen as we delve into ancient Samaria and discuss sexuality in today's culture. I also want to take this moment to apologize beforehand for pronunciation mistakes and also for background noises. There was a lot going on here when I recorded. And I kept them in for comedic relief, but next time I'll be sure to record somewhere much, much quieter. So without further ado, here's episode one. I hope you guys enjoy. I'm Jess, and with me I have my amazing sister, Jo. Hello. And my fabulous friend, Carrie. Hello. And I am going to talk about some mythology. So we have our wine and our chocolate, and I think we're all ready. Before we start, I want to ask you guys a question that I kind of want you to, like, ruminate on while I'm talking about this. And it's kind of a big question. But um, the question is this. How important is sexuality to us as humans? Not the procreation, like not conceiving children, but the desire and pursuit of sensual pleasure. Is it a baser instinct that we need to control? A carnal, mindless thing? Or do you consider it something deeper than that? Could it be a bonding mechanism? Something that allows us to connect to other human beings on a deeper level? Should sex only be practiced within the rigid norms of society? and are women sexual creatures? <clears throat> so those are the questions that I kind of want you guys to be thinking about. And you're going to understand why I asked the question at the end. Okay, so I want you guys to close your eyes and picture something for me. It's about 4500 BCE, give or take, and you're in Mesopotamia. 
modern-day Iraq and Kuwait. The air is hot and humid, and you're standing on the banks of the Euphrates River, looking at the gates of your city. This city is Uruk, and it is the largest city in the whole of the ancient world at this time. The river behind you is full of trade ships coming and going, and the city before you is brimming with working men and women. As you walk through the gates, a female physician brushes past, and she's dragging a young scribe, who's also female, behind her. You take a few steps towards the marketplace, where a merchant and her husband are selling beads and other fine wares, and off to the side is a group of judges, robed men and women bowing their heads together to discuss their latest ruling. The further you go into the city, the more elaborate the walls and decorations become. Resplendent golds and brilliant blues are all around you. You stop before an enormous partition emblazoned with the holy stone lapis lazuli, and depicted upon this wall are images of the great Inanna, the patron goddess of your city. The first image that you see is one of her as a protector. She's dressed in full male battle gear, riding the back of a lion with her bow and arrow poised for attack. As you enter the temple, you see visages of her as a sensual woman, statues and rendering glorifying the curves of her hips and the swells of her breasts. She looks powerful, suggestive, and radiant, the fiercest and most beautiful being you've ever seen. You kneel alongside your sister priestesses and pay homage to your alluring queen of heaven. So I'm hoping from the scene I tried to paint for you that you can kind of understand a little bit about ancient Sumeria. Men and women were seen as, as equals in the beginning. It changed. <laughs> um, and Uruk was a huge deal. And it was the city that was devoted to Inanna, um, who would later be no become known as Ishtar. Yeah, so it, Sumerian culture is the first civilization, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And Uruk becomes known as the first true city. Um, it's the origin of writing. Uh, the Sumerians invented the wheel, the sailboat, irrigation. In Uruk, we find the first examples of architectural work in stone. It's the origin of the ziggurat. To say it right, I probably did it, but the, the ziggurat, <laughs> you know, the oh, um. the square, to, the square pyramids. Okay. Not okay. the Egyptian ones, but the like a stacked temple. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's also the origin of the cylinder seal, and I know you probably don't know what that is, but it was a seal that was kind of like a stamp that they wore around their necks and it was for it was kind of like the ancient civilization's uh, social security card or whatever they used it for personal identification and for like signing documents and stuff like that the other thing you need to know about Uruk and ancient Sumeria <clears throat> is that sex was an integral part of society today we have all these mm, what is the word I'm looking for? Things. <laughs> we have all of these beliefs and concepts about sex. It's not something that, that we generally talk about openly, but it wasn't like that in, in ancient Sumeria. Sex was seen as just an, an extension of life. Nothing was taboo. There was references to all types of sexual acts, including sodomy, 
which is anal sex. And that was actually used as a form of contraceptive back then. I mean, it's pretty smart. I mean, when you think about it, yeah. In a way. <laughs> There's, um... Unpleasant, but smart. <laughs> there was talk about, you know, toys and things like that, and plenty of, like, positions that had nothing to do with procreation. And also homosexuality was accepted. That was... That's common, though, in a lot of ancient it, cultures, though. It is. what I have learned in upper-level classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And there were, there were societal rules about marriage. Marriage was actually a central part of society. But so was sex. So, I mean, the two existed alongside each other, cohesively, in harmony. All right, so I kind of want to talk. Do you have any questions before I move on to the next part? No. (laughs) No? Okay. Well, I'm just kind of, like, surprised by the fact that at this point in time, like, men and women were equal. Because growing up, you know, you learn in all of these history classes where, you know, men and women aren't equal. Men were always superior, and women, you know, didn't have a job. You know, they kind of just stayed at home and, you know took care of the family essentially well you have to remember and there's like there's this awesome book by Estelle Freeman called No Turning Back Um, and it talks about the history of kind of the matriarchal society so when we look at ancient cultures um, kind of pre big huge civilizations most of them were matriarchal and and they had the whole goddess thing down. You know, goddess was associated with fertility, which was associated with right. crops and harvests and stuff like that. So it doesn't really surprise me that the Sumerians at first held in everybody as equal because they kind of came out of that, you know, whole mm-hmm. thing. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the myths. So get ready. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how the ancient Sumerians viewed the world, and it's awesome. Um, this is kind of how they saw the whole world and universe. So the universe was consisted of heaven and earth, and the earth was this flat disk surrounded by a hollow space and enclosed by tin. Yeah, tin. (laughs) Like this giant cookie thing with a... Like a Jiffy Pop thing? Yeah, kind of like a Jiffy Pop thing. So... Between the earth and heaven was a substance they called Lil, and Lil translates to breath or air. So, as far as the moon, the sun, the stars, and the planets, which they knew existed because they could see them, as far as those are concerned, those were Lil too, they just kind of glowed. So they were glowing balls of Lil. (laughs) Glowing balls of breath. (laughs) (laughs) So, surrounding this thing they call the Ankai, and I know I'm pronouncing this wrong. We're moving on. Um, It's their term for the universe, which translates to heaven, earth. Okay, so surrounding that is this primeval sea. And this primeval sea is what gave birth to the Ankai, which gave birth to life. And they believed that the gods and goddesses controlled pretty much every aspect of the cosmos. So if you go back to like the creation stories there was the primeval sea which was a goddess and you know they procreated and there was things and 
things. And, so. and, and gods <laughs> came from them. Okay. Um, the world below, which is going to be important, is the underworld. And it was known as the netherworld or the land of the dead. And when you died, your soul would descend into the, the netherworld and cross a sea with the help of a ferryman. Sound familiar? Yeah, sounds like Greek mythology. Yep. Yep. Then you would be confronted by the god Utu, who was, um, we're going to talk about him in a little bit, but he judged whether or not you'd been a good human servant, because the humans were servants to the gods, or whether you've been a bad one. If you were good, then you got an eternity of happiness. If not, then you didn't. (laughs) So... Pleasant. Pleasant and terrifying <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah, it was generally believed that life in the underworld could be terrible. There were demons and creatures and things so kind like, of like that. Modern day hell. Kind of. Yeah. I mean. Or the idea of modern day. Yeah, kind of the same concept. Okay. Except you, you didn't have a heaven and a hell. You had one land, mm-hmm. which I guess they was kind of split off. Like, I guess part of their hell hell. was like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) off to the door on the right, you get happiness. Off to the door on the left, you get torture. I just a giant wall separating the two. (laughs) (laughs) But you can see, like, what it's like on the other side. So it's like there's windows in this wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay, another concept that I kind of want to talk about very briefly is the concept of, it's spelt me. Pretty sure that's not how it's supposed to be pronounced. Like, I'm gonna call it me. Like me. <laughs> yes. Me. I don't. I don't know. I'm, I couldn't find it. But the concept is me, and me in ancient Sumerian pantheon was a universal decree of divine authority. So it was like you had. How do I explain this? Okay, so you had like the art of or the craft of metalworking. Well. There would be a meh that controlled that, and a god would decree and speak the word, and then you could have it if you accepted it. Okay. I feel like we need this now. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) It's kind of what was given by the gods to create the different aspects of civilization, and it's going to become important later. So, any questions on any of that before we move on? No. No, I think. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about the gods and goddesses. I'm going to talk about... First of all, there are a lot of Sumerian gods and goddesses. Like, there's believed to be, like, thousands. We're going to talk about seven, (laughs) okay? (laughs) The seven main ones. They're the most powerful ones and the top dogs. And they're they're kind of like the seven that all other cultures copy. Mm -hmm. So, and these are also the most popular ones. But first you have An, who was a sky god. And he was the first lord of heaven. And the supreme deity, kind of like the Zeus, only he was nicer than Zeus. Zeus is an asshole. We'll talk about that in another episode. (laughs) But his role is going to later be replaced. But still, even whenever his role gets replaced, he's still revered as, like, the father god, you know. Then you have Enlil. And Enlil is the son of An, who replaces his father to become the supreme deity in the lore of heaven. He's a creator god. And in the Sumerian creation story, the world began when he, quote, separated his father on from his mother, who was the primeval sea. So. There's that. There's that. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Then you have 
and I know I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, but I think it's Enkai, and he's the god of wisdom, magic, and incantations, and he's also the cre creator and protector of man, and he's the protector of meh, or me. <laughs> meh. <laughs> meh. <laughs> that thing. So, that's going to become important later. Utu is a sun god, and we already talked about him very briefly. He's also a god of justice and judgment. Ninhursag, again, probably not the correct pronunciation, but we're going to keep moving, is a mother goddess, and she's associated with fertility, and she's the protectress of women and children. Then you have Nana, who is a moon god and a god of wisdom. And then, last but definitely not least, is Inanna. Inanna is the most popular of all the Sumerian deities. So, I mean, she's so popular that in, in ancient Sumeria, each city had their own, like, patron god or goddess. But her temples are found throughout all of them. So there's Uruk, which is, like, where her main, like, huge temple is. But there were tiny temples all throughout of, of her. People loved her. She was a goddess of sexuality, passion, war, love, wisdom, a protectress of kings, and in most of the Sumerian texts and various myths and hymns and stories, Inanna is playing an important role. So she is super central. And she's a lot more than your typical feminine goddess. She's a badass, okay, first of all. She rides a lion. <laughs> like, yeah, the lion is her animal, and the fact that she's riding it is kind of symbolic of her power over beasts and I'm guessing lions were probably the scariest predators back then like I can't think of any other ones that would have been in that area mm. yeah nothing really would come to mind yeah I think I think they were pretty but anyways she was so prominent that other cultures eventually adopt the different aspects of her she becomes known as Ishtar uh, directly after the Sumerians by the Babylonians Astarte, oh, that's wrong, Astarte by the Phoenicians, Aphrodite by the Greeks, and Venus by the Romans. Other goddesses, <laughs> we're just going to ignore that. Other goddesses within these cultures also had aspects of her. So like Nike, who was the Greek goddess of victory, that was an aspect of Inanna. And Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom and strategic warfare another aspect of Inanna. Then you have Persephone, who was kind of a resurrection goddess in the Greek pantheology, pantheology, pantheon. Inanna is also a resurrection goddess. Her origins are kind of like unclear, like the way she was created, because there's like differing stories. It depends on the myth. Sometimes she's the daughter of Idkai, the god of wisdom and magic. And other times she's the daughter of Nana. So if she's the daughter of Nana, that, make, that would make her the twin sister of Utu. So then we have the whole, like, Apollo and Artemis thing going on. Because Utu was a sun god and aspects of the moon. Anyways, okay, so Inanna is a goddess of sex, love, war, protectress of kings. I already said this. And patron for prostitutes. Didn't say that one though. She's cunning, brave, and ambitious. Most importantly, Inanna represents the power of the feminine in a time when women shared equal rights with men. 
in a time when sexuality wasn't something discussed behind closed doors, but accepted as an open expression of what it meant to be human. Now, before I get into some myths about her, do you guys have any questions? Nope. It kind of clears it up whenever you were talking about how, you know, there's like three different, like, you know, I've taken classes on mainly just Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. So hearing that, you know, and I'm hearing like, you know, when you were first describing her, I said, well, oh, well, that's Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, that's kind of Athena, Persephone. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, it ties all together from that. Yeah, she kind of, she's like the ultimate goddess. Right. There was another female goddess, the the mother goddess, uh, Ninserog. But she's not a mother goddess, and she's not a marital goddess. Like, we would see, like, um, Freya, or um, in the Greek pantheon, it would be, what, Hera? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or Frigg, excuse me, not Freya. Anyways, okay. So the first myth is Inanna and the Hulupu tree. Pretty sure that's incorrect, but we're going to keep going. So this is a creation myth. And the reason why we know it's a creation myth is because it talks about the first days. So, like, in the beginning, you know, so to speak. There was one tree that was planted by the god of wisdom in Kai. Okay. And the reason why I presented this myth first is because this is Inanna before she becomes a woman. This is her in, like, maiden form, if you want to call it that. Anyway, so in Kai, the god of wisdom and magic decides that he wants to go and visit the underworld. Um, I didn't mention her before, but the underworld is ruled by Ereshkigal, who is sometimes the twin sister of Inanna, sometimes a different aspect of Inanna, sometimes not related to Inanna at all. She's like the dark version of Inanna. His attempt backfires, and this huge storm surges and floods the whole land. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Okay. So during this storm, this beautiful one tree, it's the only one in existence, giant hulupu tree, is there, and it's being torn up, ripped apart by the storm. And Anana's walking by, and she's like, hey, that tree would make a really good throne and bed for me one day. Let me grab this thing and take it to my garden. So she stole the tree of life. <laughs> so she grabs the tree. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? <laughs> yes. She grabs the tree and takes it to her garden in Uruk, the holy city. And she nurtures it. And what I think is like very interesting is during this myth, At this point in time, she's described as a woman who walked in fear of the word of the sky god An, and a woman who walked in the fear of the word of the air god Enlil. But still, she ends up grabbing the tree and hauling off with it. And she nurtures it for 10 years, hoping it's going to grow big enough to make her a throne and a bed. We'll talk about what a throne and bed mean in a little bit, but just remember what what she represents. Okay. Before the tree can grow to maturity, three creatures come and infest it. A snake who, quote, knows no charm, and it nests at its base. And then there's a zoo bird, which is um, a mythological creature which basically creates mischief. It's just chaos. And it nests at the top. And then in the middle comes Lilith, who is the very first mention of Lilith that I know of. And she is uh, mentioned as a maid of desolation. And she makes her home in the middle. And so Inanna gets really upset 
it talks about how the girl who was who was like laughter and joy starts crying and things like that and she gets really like distraught and she tells her brother in this myth utu is her brother whenever he wakes up at dawn she goes to him and she tells him all about this tree that she saved and everything she's done to help nurture it and how these freaking crappy creatures just decided to infest it and he doesn't really want to help her but lucky for her there's Gilgamesh you guys know who Gilgamesh is no No. ever heard of the epic of Gilgamesh yes okay so Gilgamesh is kind of like the Sumerians version of Hercules he's a great hero and also king of Uruk eventually but he hears her tear-filled story and he's like I'll help so he puts on his armor and he grabs his weapons and he slays the snake who knows no charm and this causes the zoo bird to flee which in turn causes Lilith to leave because this is no longer a desolate place and that's where she resides and she goes and makes her her home in the wastelands in return for his efforts Inanna gives him a gift and he ends up using it later on in the epic of Gilgamesh but we're not going to talk about that. So that's the first myth. And I kind of want to talk about the tree. And I want to talk about why she, I mean, she's hellbent. And it, this is like in poem form. And it constantly repeats everything that she's done. And then constantly repeats the question of, when will this tree grow big enough for me to have a throne and a bed? So what do you guys think that's talking about? Well, I mean, if she encompasses sexuality, then I'm going to assume the, that it has something to do with that. Yeah. The bed would be sexuality, I think. I think this is her. And I think the throne is, like, she's also, she's known as the queen of heaven. So it's like a foretelling of what she's to become. Yes. Okay. And I think the tree is, like, the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And also represents maybe her in some aspect. Like, she's trying to nurture this thing when will i become a woman (laughs) what do i need to do to be a woman (laughs) like like that's kind of the way like what i'm thinking don't do it it's a trap (laughs) (laughs) okay so the next myth is inanna and the god of wisdom i love this one so in the timeline of events i'm thinking this happened shortly after so oh let me go back for a second and say like Gilgamesh helped her. Like With your quotations? Yes. You can't see my quotations, but he helped her. And I'm thinking, how did he help her figure out how to become a woman? But anyways. But I mean, she wants a bed. You know, <laughs> and a throne. So, I mean. Well, he builds it? the bed. Like, he builds the bed and throne for her, or has it built. Oh, see, now but that like, makes more sense, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I'm saying, like, the metaphorically. I don't know. I, I don't think so because... They never say, do they? they? Don't, no, they don't say. But I just find it interesting. Okay, so Inanna and the God of Wisdom. She grows into maturity, Inanna does, and she realizes that she has the body of a woman. Basically, she goes and she leans against this apple tree, and, like, it says that she realizes <laughs> that her... And it says this. It says that she leans against the apple tree one day, and she realizes that her vulva is fantastic and beautiful and amazing and she celebrates this and celebrates herself and then she decides she's gonna go make a trip to see Unkai 
Enkai. The reason why she's going to see Enkai is because he's the protector of the meh. And she's like, hmm, he's got the meh. I want the meh. I'm going to go see him. See if I can get some power. Because she has no power at this point. Well, I mean, she was just talking about her vulva. So but, she knows she's, she's, <laughs> but she knows she has, but she knows she has a vulva. Okay. So she decides to go to his holy Abzu, which as far as I can tell, an Abzu is like a natural bathing spring. So she's decides she's going to go there as a woman and try to get him to give her some power. Ankai, who is a god of wisdom, knows she's coming. And like... So he sees the trap. He just can't get himself out. He sees the trap, but he's like, oh my god, Inanna is coming. And he like tells his servant. And I think Ankai also has a drinking problem, but we'll get there in a minute. But anyway, so he tells his servant, he's like, hey, dude. You need to prepare for her arrival. When she gets here, you need to treat her as an equal. Like, treat her just the same as you would me. And so, like, when she gets there, she's, like, served cake and beer and all sorts of other awesome things. Sounds great. Right? Who wouldn't want to go see somebody be served cake and beer? Right. And then, like, so I'm just imagining her, like, getting into this pool and, like, he's there and she's like seducing him because she ends up having a drinking contest with him, which is great, by the way, because she wins. <laughs> and like he gets really, really drunk, and he just starts giving her the meh, like <laughs> in his drunken state. I'm sure he does. <laughs> <laughs> and and Nana, she gets there's a lot that she there's a I mean there's a huge list of she gets. Of things that she gets, but I'm going to try and go through some of them. She gets high priesthood, godship, the noble enduring crown, kingship, a noble scepter, princess, priestess, truth, descent into the underworld, ascent from the underworld, some things that have to do with doing your hair, like styling your hair. She's a woman. Yeah. Uh. Yep. She gets um, the art of lovemaking. The kissing of the phallus, the art of prostitutions, the art of song, the art of women, a whole lot of other arts, and like a giant list of crafts. So like metalworking, sewing and shit. Like she gets a bunch of, she gets all of the meh. Like all of it. She convinces him because she outdrank him to give her <laughs> all of the meh and then some. It and then some. Like. <laughs> With her fantastic magical vulva. She yeah. realized how great it was. <laughs> so, here's the funny part. So, she gets, like, as soon as she gets the art of decision making, she immediately makes the decision she's going to leave right then and there and go back to Yurik while he's still drunk. Which is probably an excellent, actually, it is an excellent decision because she gets in the boat of heaven, which is. I'm assuming a literal boat, but later on in other myths, it talks about her her boat of heaven. So, which kind of makes me think it's like a womb. But I, I think in this myth, it's like a boat. It's a boat of heaven. She's, she's in the boat of heaven. She takes all the men with her. She goes to Yurik. Ankai wakes up from his drunken stupor and starts asking his servant where the heck all the men is. And he, like, starts listing them out one by one. Like, he's like, wait kingship is kingship still here nope 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 sorry master kingship is gone you gave it to anana and <laughs> <laughs> you gave her 
he realizes this, he like starts sending his like little creatures and and things to go after her, and all she has to do is like pray to her father or whatever, and you know she's good. She's good. She gets to Yurik, and then immediately as soon as she gets to Yurik, she starts giving the mat away to the humans. Oh, jeez. So she's like, hey, you guys want prostitution? And they're like, yeah, we want prostitution. Okay, awesome, you have prostitution. Hey, you guys want kingship? Yeah, we want kingship. Okay, great, you guys got kingship. And she goes through all the lists, and then she actually ends up with several more. It's like during the art of her giving, or the, the act of her giving away meh, more meh comes down. And it she, creates its own. Yeah, and she gives it to them. And so when Unkai realizes this, he's like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and call defeat here. Cut my losses. I hope your city is a prosperous one, but let's just keep all the meh in that city, okay? And this helps explain why Yurik is the best of all the cities. And it's actually kind of interesting because... There's a bunch of different cities, and Yurik is not really the closest one to the per to like, you know, the ocean. It's the closest one to the Euphrates. But, anyways, so yeah, I really like this myth because it kind of shows Anana as this like cunning temptress who goes and like seduces her way to power. But she also like gives the power to humans. So there's that. She's like the kind-hearted escort. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like. Prostitution is one of those ones that they probably should have kept to themselves, but, you know, I mean. Well, in ancient times, there was a thing called sacred prostitution, which I wasn't going to talk about, but since you brought it up. <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> um, it wasn't seen as uh, kind of like a dirty, filthy act that we see it as today. It was done by, like, priestesses, and it was seen as an offering to the gods to help make the land fertile. So it was like this holy, revered act. Okay. Back so you then. could be a holy skank. So you could be a holy skank. Okay. You would be like the highest of... You, you'd be a step above an escort, essentially. Well, there was also this thing called the sacred marriage rites, which we're going to talk about Inanna and Demuzi, her husband, in a minute. And I wasn't really going to talk about this either, but we'll just briefly <laughs> touch on it. Which is like, the priestess of Inanna's temples would have sex with the kings of the cities in this, like, ritual act mm. once a season to bring the harvest in to fertilize the land. I bet. <laughs> okay, so, Inanna and Demuzi's courtship. So this it's probably by far, it, it probably shouldn't be my favorite, but it kind of is because it's really vulgar, guys. This one's super graphic. But it's, like, graphic in a good way because they're, like, going to get married. But anyways, so. Well, I mean, if she's the goddess of sexuality, then why would it matter if she marries him or not? It really doesn't. Um, True. It really doesn't because it's not like she stays faithful, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> so I think it's important because in ancient Sumerian culture, marriage was really important because it held the society together, you know. It, it was seen as a business contract. So there were arranged marriages. It wasn't like, you know. Oh, I fell in love with you, so now I'm gonna put a ring on it. Right, it was, it was a business contract to help society grow and for procreation purposes and. Well, that kind of like fast forwards to like 
medieval times then mm-hmm. between you know kingdoms and noble houses other noble houses right mm-hmm. so Inanna's brother Utu decides that it's time for her to marry and she kind of wants to marry it's not just his decision like she's ready for it she's she's a woman she's a woman she's ready but it is his decision that she marries the shepherd king, Demuzi. And Anana gets really upset about this because she doesn't want a shepherd. She wants a farmer. The farmers are the ones that, like, bring grains and stuff to her, like... He can feed her. Yes. I mean, who doesn't love food? <laughs> right? Anyways, Demuzi ends up showing up and he's, like, she gets, like, brutal. She, like, starts talking about his family. She's like, look... I'm a goddess. Like, my dad is, like, a god. Who's your dad? And he's like, hey, my dad's just as just as important as your dad. <laughs> and, like... <laughs> so, they have a so, they have this, like, little pissing contest, but it actually ends up turning into, like, one of those fights that you have with someone that you're attracted to, and then, you know, stuff happens. <laughs> So, like, it turns into, it turns from, like, anger to desire. Mm-hmm. So, like, the more, the longer they fight, the more attracted they are to each other. And so she's probably, like, fine. And she goes home, and her mom's, like, trying to convince her, hey, Demuzi's a good man. Like, he's going to treat you like, as an equal. I mean, he'll worship the ground you walk on. You just got to, you know, marry him. Marry Demuzi. So she does decide to marry him and I'm going to read you some of these vows because they're fantastic and they have to be shared with the world. Also they're very graphic. That's just a warning. This is Inanna. My vulva the horn, the boat of heaven is full of eagerness like the young moon. My untilled land lies fallow. As for me Inanna, who will plow my vulva? Who will plow my high field? Who will plow my wet ground? As for me, the young woman, who will plow my vulva? Who will station the ox there? Who will plow my vulva? And Demuzi's like, me. <laughs> but he goes, great lady, the king will plow your vulva. I, Demuzi, the king, will plow your vulva. So Anana's like, all right. <clears throat> then plow my vulva, man of my heart. Plow my vulva. Then at the king's lap... <laughs> I feel like that word is grossly overused. It's all over the place. All over the place, y'all. I'm not even sharing the hymns, okay? The hymns talk about lettuce and all sorts of things. Lettuce and vulva should not be in the same sentence. Y'all, no. Okay, so it says, At the king's lap stood the rising cedar. Plants grew high by their side. Grains grew high by their side. Gardens flourished luxuriantly. So Demuzi ends up becoming a god of agriculture. A shepherd god. You know. So she essentially does get to marry a farmer. I mean. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. It sounds like she kind of turned him into one. I just want to say one thing. So, like, from now on when I'm horny, I'm just going to go with my untilled land lies fallow. Like, (laughs) forever. <laughs> I, I think that would take a very specific type of human being to understand that. I mean, that just takes like some talk you can bring into the bedroom just to, hold, yeah. to a whole different level. I mean, come on. I mean, nerdy, dirty talk. Okay, so in this myth, 
we see how extremely sexual Inanna is and how we also get to see how this is it's not taboo like this is you know one of the favored myths and it's considered a romantic it's considered you know sweet and here we are laughing and here we are laughing at it because, because I mean that's what society <clears throat> has essentially created yeah. making it all taboo for you know mm-hmm. to be plowed <laughs> to be plowed I mean, and, and vulva's a pretty uncomfortable word, even for the most open in society now. That's a, I mean, an uncomfortable I think type we should see word. how many times we could say vulva throughout the rest of this podcast. But let's put it this way. I don't know if it's just because the way, you know, growing up on a small farm and actually, like, you know, raising pigs. Like, all I can think about is raising pigs and talking about, you know, what they call, like, a guilt, which would be comparable to like a heifer cow you know mm-hmm. one that hasn't been bred yet and all I can think about is the anatomy <laughs> of like this pig behind because that's what I think about when I hear that word because I mean it just takes me back to you know when I was a kid in 4-H you know learning about this stuff at what eight years old nine mm-hmm. years old I mean everything like that so that's really like all I hear same thing with the horses I mean it's the same thing <laughs> with that that's what the society has come to. True. You're only allowed to talk about sex if it has to do with animals. <laughs> that, that, that's how you learn about sex, essentially, is through <laughs> <Yeah>. livestock. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think I think it's great. I think this whole myth is fantastic. I love how graphic it gets. It gets really, really, like, there's more. There's so much more. I but believe it. I had to pick and choose, so I couldn't share the whole thing. But then, like... Following our timeline here, unfortunately, this budding romance turns sour. Because mm-hmm. next we're going to talk about Inanna's descent into the underworld. So, before I start this myth, I've got to talk a little bit, very briefly, about the Epic of Gilgamesh and that tale. And it's going to be real brief because, long, 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 long story short, The Epic of Gilgamesh is where Gilgamesh is basically on a search for immortality and he makes a friend. He's got a bromance going and, you know, it's all about his coming to terms with the fact that he's not going to ever be immortal. Anyways, during the tale, Inanna gets really impressed with him because of some of the stuff that he does with Gilgamesh and so impressed with him that she actually offers herself to him as a lover. And he's like, nah, I ain't touching that. Nope, not going to happen because then he starts citing like all the dudes that she's been with that have had terrible fates because of, you know, being an honest lover. And she gets like really upset, you know, as one would as the goddess of sex and war. He forgot about that. And she gets really, really angry and sends down her sister's husband. Gugulana, we're going to go with that. But he was known as the Bull of Heaven. So he goes down to destroy Gilgamesh and his bromance pal, Enkaidu. But the thing is, Enkaidu and Gilgamesh are kind of badass. Like, Gilgamesh is like three parts god, four parts, three, yeah, three parts god. And Enkaidu was created from a god. So, yeah, they're, they're gig stuff. So they end up killing Gugulana. 
which kind of leaves Inanna in a bit of a situation because she just got her sister who, if we remember correctly, is the queen of the underworld. Oh, she's pissed. Got her sister's husband killed. So I want to kind of pause here and state Inanna wasn't stupid. She was super, super smart. And there's been suggestion that this whole thing, like this whole little appearance in the Epic of Gilgamesh in that scene and her getting Gugulana killed is part of a larger plot to gain more power, gain power from the underworld. So what better way to do so? Because she's got to have an excuse to go to the underworld, right? She can't just show up at the gates because we learned that's a bad idea and floods happen. Yes. Yeah, so she goes down there stating that she's there for the funeral rites for Gugulana. And that's her excuse. And I, I think it's pretty genius. I can, I think that's why she, I'm going to go ahead and say that's why she did it. I don't know, but I'm going to say that's why she did it. So she uses that excuse. She goes down there, and this is where Inanna's descent begins. And she's dressed to the nines, like I said. She's got on her jewelry, a crown, a golden breastplate, and even takes her noble scepter, which is awesomely nicknamed the Rod of Power, with her. (laughs) (laughs) And she takes her trusted advisor and heir and boy, Ninsuber, for most of the way. He doesn't go all the way because, you know, he's human. But he is her backup plan, and she gives him instructions on what to do if she doesn't return, which is you know, pretty smart of her because shit happens. So, plus, remember, in Kaiju's attempt to go down to the underworld resulted in a massive flood. So, gotta have a backup plan. Anyway, so Inanna gets to the gates of the underworld and she meets this dude named Nettie. Probably incorrect pronunciation, but that's in, in ETI, whoever wants to find that. But He's the gatekeeper and he probably really hates his job because the first thing out of his mouth is, Queen of Heaven, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, not in those exact words, but he's like, why would you come here? Like, people don't leave ever. But she has the meh to ascend from the underworld. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. True. I mean, none of the other gods that had the meh were able to do it. Enkai technically had it, but he couldn't do it. Right. So... Anyway, she's really unfazed by Nettie's kind of foreshadowed warning and is all like, look, dude, I'm here for my sister's husband and, you know, for the funeral. And Nettie tells her to stay there. He's going to go talk to the boss, a.k.a. Ereshkigal. Figure who's super pissed about Who right is super right. pissed? <laughs> and figure out what to do. So, like, the queen of the underworld is sitting in her throne room and then Subar comes up and he's like, hey, your sister's here. And she's like, <laughs> What? And like gets really pissed off. And I picture like you know from the movie Hercules, the Disney movie, and you know Hades with the blue hair. Like, oh yeah. Flames. Yeah. It just grows like every time he mm-hmm. is amazed about something. Yeah. <laughs> Shocked. So being way less than pleased, she's like, you know what? Fine. She wants to come in here. Good. That's great. She can come. But you're gonna have to close all seven gates, and she needs to remove an article at each gate. So she's got to remove one of her royal garments at each of the seven gates. And Nettie does what he's told and he goes back to Inanna and tells the deal. And she's like pissed and humiliated because she ends up like bare ass naked in the throne room of her sister. 
and which I find hilarious because like I just see this image of Ereshka on her throne in like the underworld just kind of like with her arms crossed laughing internally at this naked she, she goes, here's the queen of the underworld stripped to nothing picture Cersei Lynch. yeah yes. <laughs> like I legit that's all I can picture is like this pissed off Cersei as she's finally sitting on the iron throne <laughs> just, you know yeah waiting for like you know somebody for Daenerys to just show up yeah mm-hmm. oh but I, she strips her naked first true yeah. exactly <laughs> oh kind of like the shame thing yeah oh, oh yeah yeah but you know shame, shame. yeah I, I almost forgot to mention one of my favorite parts of this myth and it's when she like when Nettie tells Anana the deal like what she's got to do she's like basically why are you humiliating me and his response is perfect he's like oh well you know the ways of the underworld are perfect and mysterious <laughs> <laughs> like all right then <laughs> I'm not going to piss her off anymore. Yeah, yeah. basically like. <laughs> I have to live with her. You don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, Anana's standing there naked. And this is where things, just shit hits the fan. She's standing there. And all of a sudden, the Anuna, which are the judges of the underworld, just kind of like come out. And like, I'm picturing they just kind of like surround her. I don't know what they look like, but. I'm assuming they're scary and creepy looking. Just come out and like rush her and they start passing judgment on her. So like imagine like a mob of like angry demons not hitting you, but like telling you you're a whore. <laughs> like yeah. And here we go back you're to wicked and shame. shame. Bell yeah. Rings. Shame. <laughs> Bell rings as you, you know, just kind of walk through the city naked. Yep. And then her sister joins in, and they actually start, like, fighting. And her, this is not Game of Thrones-esque, because Ereshio wins. The queen of the underworld, the queen of the dead, she wins. She, I mean, it's her domain. It is her domain. True. She had every right to slay her sister, and she does. But she doesn't just slay her. She, quote, turns her into, quote, a piece of rotting meat Ooh. and hooks it meaning her sister's rotting meat flesh corpse body onto a hook so like in her throne room oh. just like hangs her there on her wall in her throne room as like some sort of like weird morbid trophy and she's the queen of the underworld yeah she's she's queen of the underworld for a reason i guess she's like she sounds kind of badass oh she's very badass she really is so inanna loses and our story doesn't end here though remember the Aaronborn? Ninsubar, or however you say his name. Well, after a few days, he kind of figures out that his mistress isn't going to come back. So he goes to Enkai, good old drunkard Enkai. And with none of the men. <laughs> with none of the men. And in this myth, Enkai is referred to as Inanna's father, but I don't know if that's metaphorical because he's like older than her or if it's like. You know, one of those, well, we're not really sure where Anana came from things. Those gods and goddesses did like to do some inbreeding. Yeah. Well, there was only like, what, seven of them at the beginning? So, you have limited options. <laughs> but, anyway, so he bails her out by sending some Gala demons, who are traditionally responsible for dragging the unfortunate souls to the underworld. 
He sends them to go to Arresh Kagal, who is apparently now in excruciating pain. No explanation, by the way. She's just in pain. And it's she like, just, like, killed her sister. Well, the, the poem says that she's in, like, it describes the pain as the pain of labor, which I find really interesting. It doesn't talk about her having children, just the pain of labor. <laughs> and the Gala demons go, they don't attack her or anything. Instead, they sympathize with her. They're like, oh, man, Areshkigal, you're in so much pain and that sucks. And she's like... So grateful to have another, like, comforting presence other than, I guess, her, you know, servants and creatures of the underworld. I guess they're not very empathetic or sympathetic. But anyways, she's so grateful that she's like, you can have whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. And they're like, okay, we want the corpse on the wall. And so, like, at first she tries to, like, bargain with them and she, like, eventually just gives in. She's like, fine, take the damn corpse. I don't care. And so they take the corpse and they sprinkle the food and water of life, which was given to them by Enkai, over Inanna and boom. Inanna's life is restored. She's whole again. And she can leave the underworld, but she can't leave the underworld without having someone there to take her place. So the Gala demons escort her back to the land of the living. And they start like pointing out all the people in her life to be her substitute, but she doesn't pick anyone that's mourning her. So like, first they're like, okay, what about Ninsubar? And she's like, I can't do that because he's mourning me. And then they go to her sons. Apparently she has two sons. And both of them are in mourning. They're in like sackcloths mourning her. <clears throat> she's like, I can't do that. Even her beautician, chick that does her hair, is mourning her. Like everyone is sad and in mourning, except her husband, who is like, sitting on the throne and his royal garb like rocking out like not even anything has happened like she's never even left and Inanna sees this immediately and she's like him I pick him he's my substitute <laughs> send him there <laughs> so like there's this whole other story about his like attempt to, to escape this fate and he like transforms into a snake and you know there's a whole other myth concerning this, but eventually he's caught. And his sister, Geshchanana, the Musi's sister, helped him during his attempt to flee. So she's kind of punished with him. And what ends up happening is the Musi is sent to the underworld for half the year. And for the other half the year, Geshchanana is. This is all very familiar. <laughs> yeah. So... Now we know why the seasons change. <laughs> so I wanted to discuss a little bit. I know this was a really long one. It's also one of my favorite ones. But I wanted to discuss a little bit about Inanna's characteristics in this last myth. Because it's the last one I'm going to tell you guys. I love how I think I love how I think she orchestrated the whole thing with um, Gugulana. And... I also love how she's like goes up and she's like it's not like she's careless or heartless like even though she was kind of sort of trying to steal some power from her sister you know when she goes back she's not like she doesn't pick like the first person she sees and is like okay just take that that poor soul right there he can take my place but instead she picks some someone who wasn't who didn't care she was gone yeah and like Whenever you research about this myth, there's a lot of talk about her actions causing Demuzi's demise, which he doesn't really die. 
He actually transforms into a resurrection god, but that's a whole other story. But I think that's really unfair because, like, I mean, yeah, okay, she went to the underworld to get power. Like, yeah, but if he would have been mourning her, then she would have picked somebody else. So. I think he should have been on the hook. <laughs> I think he should have, too. Yeah. I would have picked him. If somebody had to take her place, they should, you know, have to be that her corpse non- on the wall, too. <laughs> her non-mourning husband who didn't give a crap? Yeah. Oh, I right. think I think there's even also this whole thing about how the Musi ends up as kind of a lover to a Reshkigal. That makes sense. There's a little bit. There's a little bit. I didn't see all. I didn't really research that a whole lot, but there was like a little bit of that in there. Okay, so we've heard three myths about Inanna, um, but there's also several hymns. Several hymns. And in the hymns, they talk about her aspect as a warrioress and how the kings would call on her for for strategy and political savvy and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then they also tell a whole lot deeper into her sexual nature. But in no story about her is she ever depicted as anything other than a woman who has embraced her sexuality and someone who uses this for her own gain. Sometimes this results in the gain of others, like in the meh case, but more often than not, it's just so she can get more power. But I I don't think that she's a selfish goddess because she has a soft spot for humanity and she usually helps them. So remember the question that I asked in the beginning. I'm going to ask it again in a minute. But I want to know what does it say about human sexuality that Inanna, the goddess of sex, not only becomes the most popular deity in the ancient world, but also that she ends up surviving in one form or another not only surviving, but thriving, even when women's rights begin to fade during the Babylonian rule. And she ends up bleeding out into all these other cultures. I think that's extremely interesting. And I think it says something about that our, our nature. So the question I asked at the beginning was, how important is sexuality to us as humans? It's the first part. I think... You know, in the society where, you know, now it's just so, like, taboo, but now, you know, if you look back, say, 20, 30 years ago, it was more taboo, I guess, than what it is now. So we're kind of coming full circle. I think we're coming back around, you know, just like fashion, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I guess that's the best way that I could, like, compare it to something. Like, it's going to come back around eventually, I think here recently with all the moves, you know, all the movements come around. Towards sex positivity and all that. Just like that equality, you know, everything, you know, for equality as far as, you know, sexuality comes into play. I think it's becoming more important, you know, in everyday life. I mean, at least in the United States. I mean, in other countries, who knows what it's like, honestly. I mean, you could do your research and things, you know, but I think in the United States, it's coming more. I think in a lot of, I think in a lot of other countries, um, like the European countries, other European countries, I think that it's more open. It's It's a lot less less taboo. Yeah, because I remember learning, I think I read it somewhere, online article or something about how you know, sex education classes are just so much different in other countries than what they are here. The Netherlands mm-hmm. are uh, the yeah. best example. Like, I want to move to Switzerland just because of this. 
<laughs> yeah, the Netherlands are the best example. But yeah, and how it's like taught from an early age. It's not right. just about sexy acts, but it's about your body and how to accept your body and the sexuality of others. And then about relationships and what mm-hmm. a healthy relationship looks like. And I think that's really awesome. I think that's always been the basis of human culture, though. It's just not been allowed. It to... was repressed. Right. It was repressed. <clears throat> and So would you say that this pursuit of, excuse me, of pleasure, the drive, not the drive to produce, but the pursuit of pleasure, would you say it's a baser instinct? Or would you consider it more of a way that we connect to other human beings? I think it's kind of both. Yeah, I was I mean, going to say both on that. Because if you think about it, like, there are people in life that whenever they go through something difficult, their first instinct is to jump in bed with somebody because that's how they deal with trauma or that's how they deal with emotion. Well, I mean, there's also overeaters. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm raising my hand right now. <laughs> we all work. So, but then there's also, like, people who, I mean, what's a nymphomaniac? Yeah, true. So, I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's instinctual because, I mean, obviously we are, at the core, we are animals. So, it makes sense for it to be an instinct. But at the same time, it is how we connect to other people. I mean, what's what's the difference between a friendship and a relationship? Sex. That's very true. So... I mean, you consider somebody your partner based off of how... Because you can you can connect to them deeper than you could a friend because right. you have that yeah. sexual you relationship. Have that physical connection. Yeah. So I think that it, it's both in my eyes. So... I mean, I was going to say, like, for that, though, there's also... There's different levels of intimacy, too, mm-hmm. with somebody as well. I mean... Trying to think of the best way to put this. Um, but like you have those different levels of intimacy with somebody, you know, and that's kind of like a stage in a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. But also, you know, you do do it for your own, I guess, almost Pleasure. Like personal gain. Yeah, like, you, do. you do. You do, you know, because you get that satisfaction from it that you wouldn't find. And I think it's funny that you said you didn't want to say it because I feel like we're taught that it's not okay for us to get sexual satisfaction for the sake of satisfaction. Allow personal gratification. Right. <clears throat> exactly. Which I think is, I personally think is bullshit, but, you know. I mean, I was trying to find a good way to put it that, I guess, wouldn't be so just like, yeah, you know, we do do it for our own pleasure, but. <laughs> but we do. But we do. So, okay, so having said that, do you think that sex should be practiced strictly within the rigid norms of society? No. So, like, <laughs> okay, so Joe immediately says no. I was gonna, I was gonna continue to define that, but I guess I don't need to. I mean, my society is just becoming norm, so right. I mean, and very... for the listeners who have no idea what your society is, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and so like the rigid norms of society, I was going to say, would be like between man and woman who are married. Um, that's basically what we're taught. Like, it's mm-hmm. really, we're taught from an early age, it's really not okay for you to experience sexual... You're not even really supposed to experience sexual gratification at all if you want to talk about, like, 
what we are taught here, which is in the South. You know, <laughs> you're supposed to, it's for procreation only, you know. See, I guess I have a different viewpoint of it, though, growing up, you know, in Ohio, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. the Midwest. Like, they're, you know, some people in the South will call it the North, but technically we're the Midwest. Oh, you're North for us, honey. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's not, growing up not anywhere but, like, in the Bible Belt, it was, you know, taught as, okay, well, you know, here's your sex ed class in public school, and, you know, <laughs> your parents will sit down with you and have the talk, I guess. But other than that, you know, I mean, it's not, to me, it wasn't so much, oh, you can't say. So you wouldn't consider yourself, like, maybe repressed no, I as mean, much as we, I can, I no. would say, I think it's safe to say that we were right. here as, just because, Within the within the whole category of how serious they are here about their church down here, like you know, there's a church on every corner, right? Oh, and there sex, are. yeah. And sex was not ever anything that was discussed, like even in church. No, it wasn't discussed. It was con- it was called marriage. That's all. That, yeah, I mean, that's and you, basically that's all you got taught was marriage. And you did. I know I say that, but you do get. Sex ed classes. I'm, I'm, I have quotation marks. You can't see them, but they're very exaggerated. They really just teach abstinence, which mm-hmm. I'm guessing yours in Ohio didn't. Ours did though. Like, I think it was what grade were we in? Sixth grade. I remember it real vividly for some reason. I don't know why, <laughs> but like in sixth grade, it's like I think it's because we did the dare classes mm-hmm. then, and I mean it was all like. If you say abstinent, you're going to be less likely to do drugs and drink alcohol. And I'm I'm just sitting there thinking about this, you know, already knowing, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, having, I guess, the education I did, you know, or like being taught this at home, that it was just kind of like, well, no, because you can still do this and not, you know. So you bring up drink. Right. And do drugs. Yeah, you bring I up mean, a very good point. It, it goes hand in hand in a lot of cultural, like in, in America, for young children, sex, drugs, bad decisions all go together. And I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. Well, when you say young children, let's let's lump that into teenagers because I think sex for young children is wrong. I mean, they're young children. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. So and later teenagers, I Teenagers, guess. Yeah. yeah. But, right. but I mean, yeah. Young children do need to know about sex because they need to know what's happening to their bodies. They need to be made comfortable with their bodies and things like that. Like how? But with today's culture, they also need to know what sex is before anybody else. I feel like you need to inform them before they hear it from somebody else or see it from some. Like you know, because look. Let's be honest here. If you go to public school and ride the school bus, it's a little bit different. But I also think that with that being said, let's touch on another taboo subject. If you're going to teach sex ed, like real sex ed, not this, oh, here's your banana and I'm going to turn red trying to teach you how to put a condom on it. Um, let's talk about the reality of the situation. There are more types of sexuality now than right. there used to be. And that's one thing that the Netherlands is really, they point that out from an early age, that there are different forms of sexuality. Yeah, and I think that if you're going to teach sex ed, then you need to teach sex ed for all forms of sexuality, not just heterosexuality. Because I agree with you. Then you're you're helping one group, but you're not helping the other group. Like I think I think it should be something where they know... 
like you're explaining what it is they understand what it is and that right. like i said like it's a it's an environment that it's you're creating like a biology class <laughs> well no i mean like you're creating an environment that's conducive to people being who they are who they are and to people being okay with everybody else's sexuality yeah instead of i think that would definitely help culture as a whole not view other people's choices or choices of operative word but not view other people's sexuality as being taboo. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because, I mean, but in reality, if you want to talk about, we're talking about mythology, you take it back way back, these things were not taboo. They were normal. Roman soldiers were expected to have a male lover to bide their time, and even their wives were on their wedding night. Let's talk about Alexander and his... Uh... Right, man i mean on on their wedding night women were shaved their heads dressed in male clothing to make it easier which is disgusting in one sense because that's demeaning to women i mean some women might have chosen to do it if so more power to them but i mean like these things were so normal back then and fluid and they're not now yeah I mean, and we can't really blame that on the rise or the the loss of female rights within society because women didn't have very many rights in Roman society no, they did either. Not. So, why they were forced to dress like would would you consider women sexual creatures? Yes. Yeah. Would you consider us as sexual as men? More so. I think so yes. too. I don't think that we we've been taught to be more timid and quiet and more reserved about speaking about it. True. But I think that women are ten times more sexual than men, especially considering, I mean, I mean look at our hormones. We have way more hormones. <laughs> well, let's also look at it this way, too. There's more, like, I don't know how you, like, things such as, like, <laughs> pure romance. Where, where, where do you, yeah, it's there. And it's in the background. In the That's background. a ringer, guys. Aliens. It's a ringer. They're coming okay. to get us things towards women but they're there are but they're not mm-hmm. there's more I want to say a variety mm-hmm. healthy variety I should say <laughs> yeah definitely in this day to, and age like marketed towards women than what there are men mm-hmm. I mean you have things like <laughs> coming again <laughs> <laughs> such as like they got you know you have pure romance and you have Adam and Eve and you have you know articles in Cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things that are marketed towards women that have, in recent years, made it not so, it's, has to be so hushed. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting you brought that up. You're a marketing major, correct? I am. Yeah, okay. So, I had never thought about that before, about how we're marketed now. Where it used to be men. Men were the ones marketed mm-hmm. sexually. Like, Well, you also see now, too... This is just things that I pick up, you know, just because of my educational background, you know, higher educational background. You look at things such as, like, commercials, you know, okay, let's take it back, you know, 10 years. Look at a Trojan condom commercial, how it was, like, a guy standing in the aisle of the drugstore, you know, trying to figure out what would be best, you know, (laughs) to use, what... Whereas now it's us standing in the aisle. Now it's men and women Mm -hmm. in In a bedroom or... 
somebody's picking a, a, a box that says his and her pleasure on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to think about things like that to where it's it's shifted. It's mm-hmm. kind of created that shift. I think throughout, it, let's say, the last 50 years. Throughout the last 50 years, men, when it comes to sexuality, marketing has, men have been geared to be marketed towards the female body versus women have been marketed to be geared towards objects. So, like... True. That's very true. I hadn't thought of that. That's very true, though. Like, where we are marketed to say, oh, well, you know, we get it. You have needs. Go buy a vibrator. But men are like, oh, there's all of these women with these boobs and butts (laughs) and, you know, (laughs) things that you can look at. You know, so I, I feel like... With what you're saying, things are coming back around now to where women are being more included. Right. And I think, you know, it goes back to, you know, sexual education as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what it is, but, you know, ladies, let's be real. If you like men, like, how hard is it to find a man that actually knows? Like... You know how important certain things are, or what you know creates yeah. more pleasure than not. I think this is really interesting because that like, doesn't just go for heterosexuals. I'm just gonna. Oh say no, that. I figure no, I completely understand. But you know, just the different parts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the education on the different of the parts. Yeah, they need to know where the clit is. Exactly. <laughs> they know what a G spot is. Yes. Lesbians, without take us, note. Without us having to tell them. Yes. <laughs> I find it really interesting that lesbians have the same issue. Oh my god, it's the same too. issue. Like, it is the exact same issue. You would issue. think like they have one. Oh, let's, you would understand like let's, what? Let's not, let's not, you know, demean my people when I say this. <laughs> but I mean, lesbians have a much better knowledge of the female anatomy. Obviously, we have our own. Clearly, but <laughs> that does not mean that they know how to use it any better, because I mean. In reality, you might know how to do something for yourself. Right, but it's but different for every person. That, it is. It's different for every human being. So yeah. knowing, knowing how to do that with another person. I think as like straight women having male partners, they never know because it is different for every woman. That's another thing. True. It is, but... They need to learn how to take direction. Yeah. <laughs> and let's be real. Men are not the best at taking directions from women. But... Um, Lesbians just cry. (laughs) There's too many, there's too much estrogen, and that gets in the way. Oh, you mean like as far as like sexually? So you're saying you you can't have an open sexual conversation with a lesbian? You can, but I've found in my lifetime, and maybe it's just the type of lesbians that I've been dealing with because my judgment sucks. (laughs) I mean, and a lot of lesbians are afraid to talk about sex. That's very it's interesting very because I would think our culture. I would think that it would be more open because you guys are so used to going against the quote unquote norm no. anyways. Like even some lesbians straight down to will not talk about a period. What? That's like yeah. something every woman has. Right? I don't I think mean, Anana would stand for that shit. No. <laughs> well, I'm gonna need Anana to come down here and have a discussion. So that was actually gonna a meeting, a prayer meeting. That was actually gonna be my last question for the night and it was just going to be what do you think Inanna would have to say about our culture knowing what you know about her now I think she would say that 
she wouldn't understand, you know, why. I, I guess just after hearing her wedding vows and how she just wants to be plowed. <laughs> her vulva. Know, her vulva needs to be, who is going to plow her vulva, how it would just be like a shock to her. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It would be more of a shock to her, I think, to understand and hear how, you know, society has changed to like us actually talking about a vulva. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like she would be like, what happened to all your meth? Yeah. <laughs> I gave the you the go? meth. <laughs> I gave you the meth. What the hell did you do with it? Right. <laughs> you lost your meth. Kind of like you lost your muchness. You lost your meth. Yeah. Yeah. I think she'd it's... be severely disappointed. I, th- I definitely I think, think, think she would. I think... She'd build us a throne in a bed. I think she would build us a throne in a bed. I think she would be like, look, bitches, all right, we're taking this shit back. We're going to start all over. Mama's home. Inkai, where'd you go? <laughs> but, um, okay, well, I wanted to thank you guys. And um, I really appreciate you guys talking about this. Have you learned anything? I learned that I need to meet this goddess. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this goddess needs to just, like, bring me down. Yeah, like... I feel like have we had enough wine? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't even know if I'm. I think I did mention that we were drinking wine at the beginning of this, but wine and chocolate. There has been wine and chocolate. I think I've had too much chocolate and not enough wine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had any chocolate. The bowl's behind behind the computer. Well, thank you guys, and I hope you guys can come 